Pro Se, La360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with both of my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Gang's all here. It's good to have everybody back in the house. It is. It feels really nice to have us all back together. People were probably starting to think we were in a fight or something. The listeners can't see, but we're actually all holding hands in sort of like a prayer (laughs) circle. Nice. uh, Which is lovely. Good. Um, Before we get to the news today, did you guys hear about the crazy Philadelphia state court thing with the doctor? Okay. rescued someone i i good, didn't good start into really any story i know <laughs> yeah crazy thing in a philadelphia court i'm in yeah okay so this is a there's a trial going on over the antipsychotic drug risperdal and it's like side effects and there was this guy this doctor his name is mark solomon and he's an expert testimony and uh he was testifying and uh a juror started to have a seizure Oh. And he sort of leapt out of the witness, off the witness uh-huh. stand, and like attended to this guy having a seizure, and sort of there was a whole scene. Anyway, it ended up being declared a mistrial. Well, right, because now they would give so much credence to the guy that saved a juror. Yeah, right? he sort of tainted the, right. the the whole jury pool with with his heroic actions. <laughs> Doesn't this sound familiar though? Like, I didn't we talk about a musician doing? Well, this? we talked about a guy who used to drum for the Offspring, who is now a doctor. Uh, and, and he was on trial himself. He himself was on trial for medical malpractice. That was about a year ago. Guys, okay. I was only gone for one week, but I'm I'm spinning right now. This is uh, <laughs> just a lot of a lot of things. Yeah. But, but check this. In addition to the offspring guy, two years ago, the same doctor was testifying at a different Risperdal trial. A juror fainted. He attended to that juror mistrial. So this has now happened twice in two okay, years. I like same so doctor, same drug, same court. I like thinking about this happening with an economist, like where it's like it's like someone someone's like freaking out in the, about their about their taxes. Like hops out, saves them. Well, see, my big takeaway is that do you have anything wrong with you? Maybe just show up at that Philly court. Somebody will be there. Somebody will take care of you. Well, I'm starting to think it's maybe a work. I don't know. Maybe I mean these 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 cases keep getting tossed out. This is like some fortuitous jury selection and witness and expert witness pairing. But uh, yeah. So that's uh, some that's well, some 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 heroics there in the. In the I love that court. we kicked off with something fun there because later in the show we're gonna have Ben Kochman who's who our, is not fun. <laughs> <laughs> he is a delight, but the topic is a little uh, more serious. We we have him on to talk about the giant Equifax breach that led to some investor lawsuits and what's going on with those. Yeah. Yeah, but before then, we're gonna talk about something near and dear to our hearts. Something Absolutely. that's pretty. Pretty fundamental to the legal system, uh, the 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 big old paywall that the courts have built around getting access to federal court dockets. It's it's a thing that the three of us deal with all the time, but lawyers deal with it all the time. It's I love that you said it was near and dear to our hearts because really, <laughs> I mean, it's such a nerdy thing, but we do talk about this it's a lot un- in the office. It's an unpleasant 1990s website that we pay a lot of money to. That's you got, right. You got to see the documents. This is sort of crucial so to the whole thing. What we're talking about is. Uh, Public access to court electronic records, um, but it's known to to all of us as Pacer. Yeah, um, it's uh, you know we've talked about it on the show before, but it's it's under attack as never before thanks to a lawsuit filed by um, legal advocacy groups, and um, that that case has really heated up in in the last few weeks. Yeah. All right, well let's reset for people that maybe know less about this this paywall problem with Pacer. Tell us about the system. Yeah, so like I said, it's a Lovely 1990s website. You feel like you're like, and it shows. Yeah, yeah. You feel like you're playing Oregon Trail. It's yeah. great. Um, uh, it was created in the 1990s. It's this. It was a pretty cutting edge thing at the time to let you get documents, you know, court documents on your home computer. Um, uh, and if you've ever been on there, it really does 
look like that. But the system charged like it charged seven cents at the beginning. Now it charges ten cents per page. Per page, which it it, it might have seemed okay at the time, but it's that's a lot of money, especially when you're thinking about it. it's not per document. It's per it's per individual page. So if yeah. you're downloading a forty eight page brief, it's you know x amount of dollars. And now, when you look at how much it actually costs to store and transmit a PDF worth of page data, yeah. it's almost nothing. It's like right. zero. It's it's like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a cent. Um, so, you know, you take that, that it doesn't really need to be charging quite that much anymore. And the fact that critics say that any amount of charging, specifically that much, uh, really acts as like a restriction on people getting access to the court system, which is... Very important. Sounds like there might be grounds for some legal action here. Guys, we have a we have a lawsuit. There's a, there was a lawsuit. Hit the lawsuit <laughs> button. <laughs> should we? we should really get one of those. Should we talk about the we, lawsuit? Let's we would the press lawsuit. the lawsuit button so often it would become meaningless. That's true. So, like I said, back in 2016, a group of nonprofits, um, it was the National Veterans Legal Services Program, the National Consumer Law Center, and Alliance for Justice. Um, they filed a class action over the fees. Basically, what they said was that the fees had outstripped what was allowed under this law that dictates how those fees are charged. Mm -hmm. um, the law basically says that you're only allowed to charge these to the extent that they're necessary to reimburse the stuff that you're doing. You so, should only pay Pacer to help Pacer function. That's right. It. Right. So that's the, that's how you that's how these the plaintiffs are reading it. Yeah. Um, that you know that and so they say that the government spent hundreds of millions of dollars in these overage charge fees because they're making hundreds of millions of dollars a year on, yeah. on this system um, on non-pacer stuff. On There was one thing about like flat screens in a courthouse. Yeah, various was, courtroom upgrades. There was like an academic things. study about like the Mississippi court system. It was a bunch yeah. of weird stuff that, like you said, didn't have anything to do really with Well, pacer. reading about this, by the way, this is not really central to the suit, but this does make a little bit more sense when a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the shutdown and how the, and how the court kept like miraculously finding <laughs> yeah. money. Right. And I was confused about how that happened. And that makes a little more sense when you read about the allegations in the suit. Right. That's not really yeah. material. But So where are we now with the suit? So last year, the judge, the district judge in the case, um, issued sort of a split ruling. She um, accepted the premise of the, like, of the lawsuit and said that some of these fees were being used for things they weren't supposed to, but that, um, that, that some of these things had been okay. So it sort of was like a split the baby kind of ruling. And um, both sides appealed that ruling to the federal circuit and briefing kicked off last month. And we have some, it's like you say, I mean, this is a thing that affects a lot of different people at various you know, it's an entry point to the justice system. Yeah, and, well, and, yeah. you've seen it get traction in the last few weeks, and I think that's because of, it. like like many of these cases, it's because amicus briefs have been filed by by big-name outside Yeah, groups. yeah, tell us about some of those. Um, so obviously, media companies, um, <clears throat> the New York Times, AP, a bunch of other, filed a brief saying that, that pretty much what you think, that this threatens legal journalists from getting access to court documents. Um, what I thought was particularly interesting, given some of the upheaval we've seen in the media industry, is that they they cited that. And they said, look, like small town newspapers are going out of business all the time. Yeah. Digital media is screwed. Mm -hmm. if, if you're making this paywall there, independent journalists, freelancers, small newsrooms, you're essentially shutting off access to this extremely important part of, right. of, the, of the federal government. Yeah. Um, ACLU, other rights groups filed their own, other companies that, that post these documents online. Um, I thought maybe one of the most notable was uh, Senator Joseph Lieberman. 
yeah. um, who you probably haven't heard much of lately, but uh, he was one of the guys who introduced the Senate version of the statute issue in the case. Oh. So it's always an interesting wrinkle when you're like, oh, yeah. you know, you're talking when you're talking about a law from from 1968 it's you know the, the, you just have you just have to think what they what they well, were saying you know like, like let's look at the legislative history right. here comes yeah. joe lieberman <laughs> comes i can tell you something about that <laughs> yeah yeah here's what i was thinking yeah right <laughs> um but that's what he says and he says the government is reading the law wrong and that by doing so they were threatening to create a system where um quote rich and poor do not have equal access to important government documents um i think the best brief though was for for at least for our purposes for our listeners was um a bunch of former federal judges yeah who deal with this system all the time and see the way that the court system works unlike they they are a very select perspective onto the way that the court system works um it was judge richard posner who if you've been following his post seventh circuit career it won't surprise you he's he's taken up a lot of pro se issues himself but also former um Manhattan federal judge Shira Scheindlin, um, judges from all over the country filed this brief saying, and, and they went much further than some of these other briefs, saying that Pacer should just be free, that it yeah. should be free for everyone, that it, these are, it costs almost nothing to run. We've, we've, we, we've mastered the technology to the extent right. that we don't expend resources to right. store PDFs anymore. Right. And it's not, this is just a sidebar, but like we were sort of joking about up top, yeah. the system is not user-friendly. No. In the slightest. You, so wonder, if you're arguing, you wonder where the money goes. If you're <laughs> arguing that, they need, that they're using this money to upkeep the system, you'd think they would have upgraded it in some way. It's true. But anyway... Um, the, they had a really good quote in theirs, which I wanted to read to sort of to take us out. Um, quote, the tragedy of Pacer's paywall is that the courts appear less legitimate, that neither the judiciary nor outside researchers can effectively identify or address certain systemic problems in our justice system, and that pro se litigants are disadvantaged. So strong words from people with a lot of gravitas when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yeah. Thank you, William. Uh, we have another story that has a pretty wide application, not just for lawyers, really for anybody application yeah oh look at you uh i mean i was just going for something a little more subtle but thanks for pointing it out um the uh like i said it applies to everybody but for the attorneys in the audience let me let me just set a scene for you okay you're having a pretty sensitive discussion with your client you know you're plotting out your strategy you're talking about things that you wouldn't want the other side to necessarily know about yet or anyone else to know you get done you take out your phone to check your missed calls or your texts and you discover that some unknown person has been listening to the entire conversation you just had through a glitch in Apple's FaceTime app. Gotta be beeping me. This is a nightmare, and the nightmare apparently became reality for a Texas attorney named Larry Williams, and he sued Apple last week over this uh, this glitch. This is crazy. I'd heard about that glitch that FaceTime could record things, right. but for it to play out in a sensitive discussion from an attorney is wild. Yes. Um, so Williams is a criminal defense attorney from Houston, and his suit against Apple last week basically says that he was conducting a private deposition with a client when he discovered that there was a bug in the iPhone that he had just updated that allowed the conversation to be recorded by an eavesdropping party. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, the way the bug works, FaceTime was recently updated uh, to allow for group chats, the idea uh -huh. you know, having FaceTiming with more than one person. Um, but within the code of the update was a bug that basically allowed users to call someone on FaceTime and listen to them, even if the other person didn't answer the phone. How could that... 
So, That's crazy. Yeah. Like, even when, like, I remember when, you know, FaceTime started to, like, actually become, like, a thing that people were using, there were fears about eavesdropping mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, turning it, you know, everything is a, everything is, a, every camera is a surveillance camera right. and every, you Black know, mirror it, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but I didn't think that they, that, it, that that people thought it would take root like this, like, so easily that, like, you didn't even have to be a sophisticated hacker to use it. Anyway, uh, the suit explains uh, a little more succinctly. Essentially, the product converts a person's personal iPhone into a microphone that can be answered by an unknown third party and listen and record one's most intimate conversations without consent. Wow. So what's he saying? Like, what is the grounds for the lawsuit? Yeah. So he has hit Apple with a a bunch of claims. There's like 10 causes for action in the claim that range from basically product liability to fraudulent misrepresentation. He's saying that Apple either knew or should have known about the bug and that it's and its damaging effects and that the negligence has basically cost him, you know, financial loss, mental anguish, things like that. So he's saying, you know, you either knew or should have known this is a pretty straightforward fraud. Was there like happening. an ethics angle to it? Like in in terms of like it, it's interesting it would be interesting to think about like what a state ethics committee would say about something like this where like clearly if this was something where you did something wrong, yeah, yeah. that's a good you point. would be in all sorts of trouble. But like a bug that you had no idea about. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, and I don't I don't know if he's filed uh, something to that effect, but that is another interesting angle to it. Um, for right now, it's just a legal action against Apple that we know of. App- so, what, yeah. yeah, what has Apple said in response? Apple's been mostly quiet. Um, there are... Has new- anybody called them on FaceTime and tried to listen to what they want to say about it? <laughs> we, could, we could call Cupertino right now and see what's up. Uh, there are media reports that... The, the, the company has, made, has remained publicly quiet. There are media reports saying that they've basically disabled the FaceTime group chat function while they get it sorted out uh but you know no comments yet we're about to have a ha- have a chat with Ben about some pretty serious cybersecurity compliance stuff uh and what that has you know the implications that it has for companies but this is like if if there's truth to this if this functions the way that this suit says this is a pretty it's a pretty huge blind spot oh, yeah. for Apple in terms of the way that the phone is supposed to function think, and the way it's functioning instead. I think it'd be fine if they just kept FaceTime turned off. I'm not a big FaceTime guy. No, I, I find have it. You, have you I ever find it a, unpleasant? Have you ever had a good conversation on FaceTime? No, like you're my mom like looking to, at yourself I, and then looking at the. I actually enjoy FaceTime quite a bit for very girly reasons, like calling my sister to be like, "Hey, do you like this shirt?" Like, I think yeah, it's stuff like sure. that, where the visual is the conversation. Yeah. yeah. Well, every once in a while, like especially since I don't go home as much, my mom is like, "Hey, call in." To FaceTime into Easter with like <laughs> right. eleven people in the yeah. room, and I'm like, "How? What's going?" It's a cacophony of sound. Anyway, FaceTime has its own problems as its own functionality. <laughs> this is certainly not something that they envisioned as a possible drawback. Um, hard to say what the future of this particular suit is. It was just filed sort of in Texas state court, and it's one attorney, you know, saying that it damaged this sort of specific part of his legal proceeding. Um, but if the bug is as extensive as has been alleged, the problems for Apple may just be beginning. my data breached in 2017, and so did half of Americans when credit reporting agency Equifax was hacked. Unsurprisingly, lawsuits followed. One case, a sprawling investor lawsuit, cleared a hurdle in recent weeks when a judge refused to dismiss the case. Here to talk about what that means is Ben Kochman, our senior cybersecurity reporter. Welcome to the show, Ben. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Welcome aboard, sir. Yeah, so this Equifax uh, situation, I think a lot of people maybe remember it. We talked about it on the show once before. Um, Can you tell us about that hack and about the lawsuit we're talking about today? So it has become part of the inevitable fallout of many, many data breaches that seem to happen every other week for there to be a suit filed by investors saying that the company misled the market in some way about Mm -hmm. how its cybersecurity was before a breach. In Equifax's case, we all know about what happened, this massive breach announced in the fall of 2017. And so the question in the lawsuit was whether investors can reasonably say that Equifax misled them about the status of its defenses. That they mm-hmm. thought that they thought that, that the company was ready for something like this and, and they ultimately weren't. So what we know from the judge's decision now is that there is a roadmap for a case that could show that a company like Equifax misled the market about its cybersecurity. And so it may end up changing the way that companies talk about cybersecurity to avoid being the next Equifax. And this is historic, right? We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording about, like you said, these breaches like this happen a lot, and there are lawsuits filed a lot, but we're in pretty uncharted legal territory here as far as how how far along the suit has gotten, correct? Yeah, so this is the first time that a case has survived the motion to dismiss. Mm -hmm. One of these investor stock drop cases there are dozens of these cases. They are filed every time mm-hmm. within hours. It's sometimes. almost like algorithmic, right? Like, yeah. When, when <laughs> no, when they're, when they're like, when yeah. I think, right? I, I could be wrong. Yeah, but, it's like yeah. pegged to a yep. certain, yeah, like, exactly. yeah, you have an agreement in your in your investment, you right, know, pact right, or whatever. Right. Yes. And so what people are watching now is how, the question that we have now is to what extent this case will affect other types of cases. Mm-hmm. And the judge was careful in this ruling to, point out that the mere fact of a data breach is not enough for this kind of case to survive and for companies to face this kind of legal hit. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a direct link between a company saying publicly, we have great cybersecurity or we have robust protections, and then at at the very least allegations that the company did not live up to those promises. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Equifax specifically, because I think sort of the the facts here are a really interesting fact pattern for this to play out. It's a company that itself uh, builds its whole model on holding data. Sure. Yeah. So that, that that's a great point. And that's something that the judge in a Georgia federal court talked about was that there is a different standard. It's unclear to what extent this will affect a big retailer, for example. Yeah. But the judge did say investors have a higher – when investors hear from a company like Equifax, whose whole business model revolves around collecting user data, selling that data, protecting that data, when they hear from that company that they are taking rigorous measures to protect their security, they better actually be doing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that seems a little different than like Target was another one that was breached a couple years ago, right. and there were suits after that too. But it does seem like a, a real substantive difference between the type of company that is. Well, there are things in this decision, though, that may apply to any company. Okay. And specifically, what is in the decision are examples of ways that the company said that they had great cybersecurity while being told, according to the suit, by third parties, for example, that they didn't. So any company, even if it's not Equifax, that says that it is keeping up with best practices and is doing X, Y, and Z, 
if it can be shown that they're not doing that, mm-hmm. it could be problematic for any company, even for companies that are not revolving around data like Equifax is. We're going to talk about the implications for other companies in a little bit, but I did want to just talk to you. You had some great color in your story about the sort of things that Equifax actually did that you know s- seemed to keep the investors in the dark here, and the judge really seized upon that. Like, can, can, can you talk to us about the sorts of things they were holding out there about their security? Sure. Well, that's a that's a good question, Alex. Equifax, Thanks, <laughs> Equifax is in a particularly sticky situation here mm-hmm. because they're not just accused of misleading investors on their regulatory filings with the SEC, for example. They're also the the CEO himself. Company executives can be held personally liable for this sort of thing. And he's been named in the suit, yes. And he is, he remains in the suit. Yeah. Richard Smith, the ex-CEO of Equifax, remains in the suit after right. this. There were other other executives who had their charges dismissed. But what was different about Smith is that he gave a public speech on the topic of cybersecurity, according to the suit, months, around a month after he was told by a third-party that the company was breached. So when the company was deciding whether or not to tell the public about the breach or how to tell the public about right. the breach, at that same time, according to the lawsuit, the ex-CEO, Richard Smith, gave a speech at the University of Georgia, which is posted to YouTube now, so anyone can go watch this. He said his biggest fear, or one of his biggest fears, was that the company would endure a cyber attack. So he said these things at the same time, yeah. according to the suit, where... He had already known that his company had been the victim he, of a cyber He's speaking attack. about it in, in hypothetical terms. Like, it would be really bad if this happened, knowing, <laughs> that's or a per, allegedly bold. knowing that it already had happened. Yeah, I mean, that's a really bold move for someone to take. It feels like sort of the perfect storm of facts here for this suit to be the one that's continuing on. Um, so, yeah, you said that he did that, but they also did the things you talked about before, right? They, they did say in SEC filings that they had robust protections, that kind of thing. What's sort of the whole package? Yeah. And the example about the CEO may be part of the reason why the CEO remains in the suit. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason that Equifax, that the claims are still an issue for Equifax, is because of what they said on their SEC filings about having rigorous risk audits and things like that, comprehensive protections. Equifax had said, hey, look, this is what they called inactionable puffery. This is a statement of <laughs> so it's corporate... always one of my favorite legal terms, yeah, puffery. puffery. It's, a, it's, a, it's a classic. They said, look, these are what any company would say because mm-hmm. is any company really going to say, well, we have shoddy cybersecurity? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it's like when a restaurant brags about being the best in town kind of thing. Like, that's the kind of argument they're making that everybody's going to say. Best like, pizza, we... best yeah, cybersecurity, right? whatever. <laughs> you know, tomato, tomato. But why did they go beyond, or why is it, possible they've gone beyond just that puffery well it came down to the specific words that they used okay and that is something that i'm sure lawyers who talk to these companies are going to tell them for future situations to be very careful about what words they choose because now we know that if you say that something is rigorous that's different from just saying that it exists so there is an issue there that's a good way to sort of transition into the you know the idea of like what companies can learn from this when they're looking at it there was a lot of like very specific situations to what they did but like is it i mean how do you like what do you do in an sec filing are you more vague about it do you not mention cybersecurity at all what do you like what are the steps that a company should take well it's a very tricky situation bill because 
the SEC has separately said that they want companies to be more upfront about cybersecurity risks. Right. So how do you balance the, and it's not just the SEC, anytime an executive appears in public or talks to investors, it's maybe agenda list number one, what is going on with cybersecurity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is your defenses? Are you ready for an attack? Well, it's because these companies keep getting hacked. They're obviously yeah. going to keep getting asked about it. So they, companies have to balance the demand for them to be more upfront about this sort of thing with maybe being more honest about the types of risks and in general just being more careful because any words that they say in public or in one of these documents could be used against them in court. Well, I guess the ultimate policy goal is to actually just have better cybersecurity. Right. (laughs) I mean, that would be the foolproof. uh, Yeah. But also, I mean, it does seem like maybe what you said, Ben, um, companies might want to be more transparent now and just saying like this hacks happen very regularly <laughs> um, because it does seem like it's more and more um, over the years we've seen a real uptick in in how many big companies are getting breached yeah so that, that that's a good point I, I don't think it's enough just to say and this is I, I heard this a couple of times from attorneys who regularly do this this is not just me saying yeah it, yeah yeah but it may not be enough just to say that hacks can happen. If you're a company that handles a lot of user data and if it's a big part of your business, there is a bar that you should be meeting for how good your cybersecurity is. Mm -hmm. And separately, if you're going to promise that you have a certain type of cybersecurity, you better actually have it. That's, That's one main message. One, to get your cybersecurity better if possible, even though we all know that even if you have the best cybersecurity in the world, something could happen. It's One thing companies can do is have the best that they can and then also be very careful about how they describe it. So I think we'll see companies testing out different ways of describing their cybersecurity in future filings, in future press appearances and things like that to sort of test the waters for what is okay and what could get them in trouble. All right, compliance attorneys and general counsels, now you know what to tell your 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 CEOs when they're going out talking to people. <laughs> uh, thanks for explaining all this to us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> like to end our show with something offbeat and Alex you're going to tell us about something today. Guys, we've all made mistakes whether we're talking about <laughs> I love these theatrical setups <laughs> at work or in our personal lives. We're humans, we've not been replaced by robots yet. We're imperfect beings. We make mistakes, but I think most of our parents taught us, you know, when you make a mistake, it's best to just be honest about it. Uh-huh. Uh learn from it and you move yep. on. This lesson did not appear to resonate with New York real estate attorney Dennis McCubery, Dan, who was suspended by the state court for three months this week for fabricating briefs and email correspondence from opposing counsel to cover up for the relatively minor mistake of forgetting to file an appellate brief. Well, that could be a pretty bad mistake, but most people would just beg forgiveness from the court, try to get an extension of some sort. 
tell their superiors. I assume he's an associate. Yeah, he. Sorry, he's yeah, he's an associate or was was an associate when this happened. Uh, let's just dive into what happened a little bit more because yes, I don't mean to underplay. If you're going to appeal a case and you just don't dock at the appeal, that is a big thing. Yeah, it's a big mess up. This began uh, in 2016 when uh, McCoobery is working as an associate at this real estate boutique in New York, and his boss told him to file an appeal in state court and serve it to opposing counsel. He sent the brief to the firm's uh, printing vendor, but he didn't instruct them to actually file it. Mm -hmm. So that's a mistake. Right. And potentially a big one. But like a procedural mistake and like you feel bad for the guy, like he probably would have gotten reamed out and everything else. But like... Rather than come clean, uh, he instead told his boss, his par- the, the, the partner at the firm, that he had struck an agreement with opposing counsel to extend the deadline for filing the appeal. Love this guy. And as Ooh. This guy's going to commit some crimes. And as support for this, he fabricated a brief from the opposing counsel saying, yes, I, I agree. I give you more time. We're going to have more time to file this appeal. <laughs> but he went a step further. In addition to the fabricated brief, he also then concocted a bogus email chain and forwarded it to his boss, <gasps> saying, here's us talking about this extension we were given. The amount of time he's spending on the bogus stuff, he just could have cleaned up the actual problem. Could file the brief and ask the court, hey, look. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I also, it makes you wonder, like, what did he think the end game was? Because he did not have this agreement. So it was going to come out eventually. Yeah. The brief well, was never filed. Yeah. The, well, Eventually, the case just didn't show up on the appeals calendar, and the partner right. went back to him and said, hey, whatever happened with this? And he just fessed up to the whole thing. But it gets better, because <laughs> that was in 2016. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is that came about because he forgot to file a brief, right? So he took that nugget with him. The next year, in 2017, uh, McCubery was tasked with drafting an appellate brief. He did that, and then he filed it. Clearly trying to capitalize on his mistake of not filing Mm -hmm. prior. Then it turns out his boss comes to him and says, oh, that was supposed to be just a a draft. Send me the like, send me the draft so I can mark it up and then we can file it. He (laughs) he then fabricates a draft, gives it to his boss to mark up. And then when he marks it up, he says, oh, I actually already appealed this or or, I, I already filed this. I mean, so he's making the mistake in both ways. He's not filing right. and then lying about it. Then he filed it and lied and about, lies it. about it. Um, uh, yeah. Not a you lot of lessons just, learned from that first digging. one. Anyway, the New York State Court, uh, he was sort of, the, the, he was referred to the disciplinary arm of the New York State Court. Uh, they suspended him for three months, which seems light to me. I don't know what the, I don't know what the standard is for like two different incidents of a very right. specific nature like this. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. That's what's going on in the many sort of deceptions of Dennis McCubery. Guys, when I ask you about how your stories are going, please don't send me something that's already published as a draft. Oh, yeah. We're not going to do that. Okay, great. I'll try not to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for being with me this week, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Ben Kochman. And contributing reporters, Allison Grandy, Matt Fair, and Mike Curley. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to us wherever you find podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. And if you like us, leave us a review. Thanks and see you again next week.